The Department of Homeland Security has a new plan to evaluate the cybersecurity of companies it does business with before making contract awards. If you think the DHS plan looks like the Pentagon's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, well, think again. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the details. And so, Justin, what exactly is the DHS plan here for making sure cyber safety of its contractors? Yeah, DHS will use a cybersecurity readiness factor as part of its pre-award evaluations. It put out this plan in a November 1st notice on SAM.gov if you want to read it for yourself. But essentially, it says that the department needs to ensure effective and appropriate cybersecurity measures are in place by vendors. And this factor will allow DHS to evaluate companies' cybersecurity posture before awards for applicable contracts. So it won't necessarily apply to all contracts. DHS vendors for a long time now have had to follow the National Institute of Standards and Technology cybersecurity controls for protecting sensitive government data. But DHS and other agencies have really never checked whether they're actually doing that. So this is DHS's plan for doing just that. Kenneth Bible is DHS's chief information security officer. He spoke about the plan. It'll start helping us to go look at this in advance of a contract award. We're trying to take steps that we can do now. Let's just start. And in my mind, that's what starts to build the public's confidence. If they can just see the government moving out to do the things that we're asking them to do, and we're starting to hold ourselves to the same standards, I think that goes a long ways. And are we going to hit the mark every time? Probably not. But the point is that if we don't start, then we're never going to get there. Unlike CMMC, which sort of started and never quite gets out of first gear, I guess. Will this be something that the suppliers attest to? I mean, they don't have third-party verifiers and all of this the way CMMC is planning. That's exactly right. DHS will essentially send companies a security questionnaire that DHS will then take back and assign cybersecurity readiness ratings Uh, ranging from across three broad categories, a high likelihood of cyber readiness, just a likelihood of cyber readiness, or a low likelihood of cyber readiness. And the metrics, uh, again, will be tailored to individual solicitations, so it won't be like this across-the-board sort of requirement for all DHS contracts. But importantly here, a company's cybersecurity rating could either help or hurt their bid when it is used in a solicitation. The DHS's plan says they will use the cybersecurity readiness factor as a best value trade-off in award decisions. So this could come down to whether or not you have good cybersecurity in place if you want to win a contract. I guess if you're buying, if they are buying a machine like a spectrometer or something that's online to see that when they swab something at an airport and it transmits that information to their central database, that would have to be cyber secure, but maybe they would have a different standard for the people selling the swab tips. Yeah, exactly. It seems like it's going to be on a case-by-case sort of a risk-based uh, basis here. And and again, you know, DHS wants to make sure that these contractors who are making those more sensitive uh, pieces of equipment are protecting that data on their networks. It sounds as if DHS deliberately is not going down the same path as the DOD is with its CMMC program. And they just, why? Do they say why? Yeah, in a couple of words, uh, small businesses. Uh, DHS for a couple of years now has been looking to improve contractor cybersecurity, similar to how DOD has been looking to ensure contractor cybersecurity. But DHS works with a lot of small businesses, and they're concerned that these third-party verifications could muddle that up. 
here's Ken Bible again, DHS's CISO. And what we had found was that some of the other techniques that were being approached, like the way the DOD was working with their cybersecurity maturity model certification, kind of the third-party assessment approach, wouldn't really work with our industry base of DHS. We have uh, the great pleasure, I think, of having a tremendous percentage, uh, I believe the last number I heard is like $6 billion a year of small business prime contracts for DHS, which is a point of pride for the department and justifiably for our procurement shop. Yeah, and it's getting harder and harder to find small business vendors. That base of companies is shrinking, and so the government is doing more and more business with a smaller population of them. So I guess maybe this is an approach that won't kick more of them out of the market by having that attestation that they have that factor that's wanted. And by the way, what is the latest on the CMMC program? Yeah, it is inching along. The Pentagon is uh, close to making the CMMC requirements a reality, relatively close compared to how long this has taken. They submitted a rulemaking, DOD submitted a rulemaking package to the White House earlier this year in the summer. And everyone who's watching the program expects that that rulemaking will be finalized and released for public comment by the end of the calendar year here. Now, once that comes out, there will be a public comment period, most likely, and then DOD will have to sort through all of those comments before finalizing the requirements. And so everyone watching the CMMC program expects that the requirements won't go into effect until late 2024 at the earliest. Right. It keeps getting pushed back to another year and another year. It's kind of like zero trust. The Pentagon will get there in 2026, you know, the way they're going. Now, DHS's Bible said that they were just going to go ahead and do this because they don't want to wait. So what are the next steps? Yeah, Bible actually said that DHS doesn't have to do any rulemaking to start using these security questionnaires and evaluation factors in procurements. Uh, the notice that DHS put out uh, doesn't state exactly when the new factor will go into effect, but DHS is seeking feedback on its plans by no- November 17th. So notionally, DHS could start using this in, in solicitations after that date, uh, but that kind of remains to be seen here. So it's something we'll have to watch going forward. Well, the question, I guess, will come in individual awards, whether someone is at the mid-level instead of the higher level with their factor, could they amend their posture with putting in controls or something, raise their factor, and then be competitive? Or will you just be knocked out because you're the second factor and not the first factor? I think that's going to be a protest situation, possibly. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of questions here about how these evaluation factors are going to be implemented and whether companies will be able to protest certain things. Obviously, DHS acquisition officials will have to probably make these expectations clear up front in solicitations. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. 
Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. 
Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human centered. The human centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just in time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? 
Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins 
who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.